All right. This presentation is called The Evolving Role of Legal Aid in Addressing Systemic Racism. Just want to be sure everybody is in the right place. Uh, my name is Kimberly Merchant, and today I am joined by my colleague and friend, Merv Eamon, um, who will introduce herself in a little more detail. And so I wanted to start by saying I work at the Shriver Center. As um, Danielle mentioned earlier, I am the director of the Racial Justice Institute and Network. The Shriver Center really battles poverty and racism at the intersection um, through litigation, through policy advocacy, and by training and building the capacity of advocates. That's where I come in. The Racial Justice Institute is a six month long leadership development training program that understands the essential need for um, intersecting, intersecting race and poverty when addressing race equity issues. And we believe that public interest in legal aid organizations such as yourself are really key to making that real change. You guys span every state across the US. And so that's a really powerful network that we attempt to tap into through the Institute and hopefully expand this message so that uh, we continue to increase what we call the race equity movement. Um, the Institute is in its eighth year. Um, we're smack dab in the middle of it right now. We now have trained 350 plus advocates across 100 organizations in 32 states plus DC. These are the beautiful faces and diverse faces of those who are participating this year. I see a couple of alumni here. So I wanna give a shout out to Daniel. I did see him online. If there are others here that I missed, I'm sorry, but um, I'm glad to have you guys here in this space. Um, one of the things that Murph and I um, generally do when we do this presentation, I'm gonna stop sharing some as I figure out where my bar went, here it is. Um, so you guys can see me, is we share our stories. And I want to acknowledge that each of you also have a story. There's something that brings us to this work. And for us, you know, it's not, no one does this work to be rich. Um, you know, we, we, we've made a decision to be here for a particular reason. And so I just wanna share my journey really quickly. I am a practicing attorney for about 24 years now. I started my journey out of law school. I can remember going to law school and um, never having met or know an attorney or a judge. Um, but one of the things, I went to the University of Mississippi and, and yes, um, they still struggle with diversity. I was in a class of 280 some people and there were only 18 people of color in that class. Um, by the second year, we had been chopped down to about nine. So. Um, as such, um, I struggled with um, assumptions, biases, ideas, people believing we were there because of, um, because of affirmative action. And to some extent I was, I had applied to various um, universities to go to school and I was going to Vanderbilt actually, I had a really great LSAT score and a great GPA. So I was going based on merit of course, but um, I got a letter from the University of Mississippi saying, if you'll come, we'll, um, we'll pay for your tuition. And so Vanderbilt's pretty expensive. I had to make a decision. And I went to the University of Mississippi as a consequence because I didn't want to be having student loan debt for the rest of my life. Um, and after graduating, um, I really didn't know anyone. So any attorneys or judges or anything. So I didn't know what to do. And there was really no one there to guide us and no one who was guiding us or guiding me. So as a consequence, I just sort of mass mail uh, my resume and letter out and I got a response from a gentleman here in Greenville, Mississippi, where I live now. And he was a civil rights legend. 
in this state at the time. And so I felt like I could learn a lot from him. And so I moved here to what's called the Mississippi Delta, never been here before and started working. He at that time was doing a private practice and I we represented car companies, insurance companies. I was doing insurance defense basically. And after a while, he, he was also like a tobacco attorney. So he got all this money. He decided, you know what? We're not doing this defense anymore. He wanted to go back to representing the people because that's sort of what his start was in the 70s when he came to Mississippi. Um, and so we began doing that. So about for nine years, I did civil litigation, both federal and state. Um, and at one point he decided to retire because that's what tobacco can do for you, right? You don't have to do this anymore. And uh, he had practiced for 30 plus years. I then decided I wanted to do something different. So yes, I was a prosecutor for about six years, but this is sort of the beginning of my story and my journey. Um, I learned really quickly that prosecutors have immense power and discretion. Um, I had the power as an assistant district attorney to make a case go away. I also had the power to make your life miserable if I had if I decided to do so. Um, I wanted to innately use my power for good and so, I was um, a bit of an outsider in the office. They called me the social working um, DA. And as such, I got a lot of flack, but there was one momentous moment for me. There was a young man who was dating a younger girl in, in Mississippi, 36 months is the cutoff for statutory rape. They had been dating in junior high. They had dated in high school. They had dated their whole life. Um, and she became pregnant his senior year of high school. And, but they were still dating. Everybody was fine. His family was fine. Her family was fine. He finally went off to college. And of course, when you get to college, you have new experiences. And he no longer wants to date this young lady anymore. So he broke up with her. And as a consequence, she was angry. Her family was angry. And they decided that the way they were going to get back at this young man was to charge him with statutory rape. That case then landed on my desk. And I do what I normally do. I read the file. I make some calls. And I was like, yeah, you're not going to use the DA's office as a weapon. As such, I was declining to prosecute this case. But I had a boss who was the law and order sort of DA. He comes down the hall and says, no, Kim, we're going to indict this case. So I was forced to bring it to the grand jury. It did, in fact, get indicted. Um, and as such, ended up on the docket. So this case is still on my desk, although I tried my best to get rid of it, um, which also shows the power of, of political climate around the district attorney's office. A phone call can make a difference. Um, and as such, I decided I was going to treat this young man the way I did other young men who were trying to make something of their life and a felony conviction and being a registered sex offender was not a good start for him. So I was giving him a misdemeanor and letting him plead to delinquency of a minor. Six months, he could get it removed from his record, boom. Um, on my way to the courthouse to do the plea, I was stopped by my DA and he was like, what, what are you doing in this case? And I told him what I had planned to do and I had done it many times before. He's like, no, I spoke to the grandfather he's going to get this felony. I was like, yeah, no, I can't do this. I literally can't do this. Um, and he says, no, you're going to do this. Um, I was a very difficult assistant district attorney. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I walked across the, it was literally across the street from my office as I was struggling, trying to, like, what are you going to do, Kim? And got into the uh, courtroom and did what I promised the young man I would do. Before I could get back to my office, my DA is standing there waiting on me, of course. I had to, um, account for the why I you know disregarded the direct order and as such at that point I said to myself you're either gonna have to run this DA's office or you're gonna have to leave this DA's office. Um, so trying to change the system within the system was not something I could do at that time. So as such I transitioned to the Mississippi Center for Justice, <laughs> a space where I could use my social justice sort of uh, 
uh, skills uh, in a positive way, work with people who believe the way, who thought the way I find it's critical to be in a space with folks who believe that, and even having the, the freedom to sort of fight this fight um, with resources without having to worry about that. So I was the managing attorney of a new office they were developing here in the Delta, and I was the director of educational opportunities. I specialize in education law, and I represent many uh, mothers and, and um, parents and students students with special ed, students who are being um, wrongly disciplined across the state of Mississippi. And um, I was wielding that knife and filing litigation left and right, using my skills to help families. And then I, um, 2014, was invited to the Racial Justice Institute. And so as such, I came to the Institute. And, and, under, and for the first time, someone sort of explained this intersection of poverty and race. So I was representing all these Black boys across Mississippi seeing these disparities. And honestly, it never even occurred to me that um, I didn't even stop to think about the, the larger issue at play. I understood racism, of course, to some extent was the underlying factor, but didn't really know as an advocate what I could do about it. And that's what the Institute sort of taught me. So I came back with these completely new skills and ideas, ready to blow up the world, um, tear it all down. And um, after three years of doing that, I then became the director of the Institute. It seemed like a natural transition for me. And I've been there ever since. I believe in the Institute and what we do. And that's why I do what I do. And so with that, I'm going to pass it to my colleague and an alumni of the Institute, might I add, very proud to say that because she definitely burned it all down. When she came to the Institute, um, they were like, um, I think it was staff attorney, Murph, at that time. And right now, they are the um, executive director of Columbia Legal Service. But I'm going to let Murph tell their own story. So I'm going to pass it to you, Murph. Thanks, Kimberly. I'm going to try to share my screen here. Um, let's see. Are folks seeing slides? Yeah, you see yes, the slides? You see yes. the slides? Okay, so I'm gonna go back to the beginning. All right, so um, for me, I think it's really important to uh, ground the beginning. Kimberly will talk later about the four levels of racism, but for me, it's important on an individual level to share, because I think as we're doing this work and talking about this work that, I. I can't do it unless I'm uh, unless I'm willing to be vulnerable. So I'm going to start. Um, I'm the executive director of Columbia Legal Services. We're a statewide organization. We're not LSC funded. We have five offices across our state. I'm the ED now. Uh, I have a story of how I got there. I'm going to start with uh, a poem. Uh, to ground us in um, in a different in a different um, way of thinking. So this is a poem telling by Laura Hershey. Laura Hershey is a was a disability rights activist. She died a few years ago, and so why do Kim and I tell our stories, and why is it so important? And when we ask others to tell their story, the communities that we work with, the clients, each other, when we're doing this work, what you risk telling your story, you will bore them. Your voice will break your ink spill and stain your quote. No one will understand. 
their eyes become fences. You will park yourself forever on the outside. Your differentness, once and for all revealed, dangerous. The names you give to yourself will become epithets. Your happiness will be called bravery, denial. Your sadness will justify their pity. Your fear will magnify their fears. Everything you say will prove something about their God or their economic system. Your feelings that change day to day, kaleidoscope will freeze in place, brand you forever. Justify anything they decide to do with you. Those with power can afford to tell their story or not. Those without power risk everything to tell their story and must. Someone somewhere will hear your story and decide to fight, to live and refuse compromise. Someone else will tell her own story, risking everything. So for me, I grew up in a very rural area on the New York, Pennsylvania uh, border in the foothills of Appalachia in an incredibly impoverished area. My first school was K-12. It was a wonderful, beautiful place. Uh, there was joy in that childhood. There was also lots of pain and lots of poverty and an incredible amount of violence. And it was also mostly white area where I grew up. And I think it's important to talk about the trauma that we have in our lives. And for me, there's a moment when I was eight years old. And so this is a little bit violent. So if folks need to mute, please feel free to do that. So uh, my father, alcoholic, uh, not always enough food. Sometimes we didn't have heat or hot water. And I wanted to stop him from drinking. So at eight years old, I made a decision to pour out um, his bottle of vodka. And so I did that. And so he got incredibly angry. Uh, he was uh, had been a prisoner of war in Korea, POW. He took picked up his 22 shotgun, which he had taught me how to use. And he was a sharpshooter. I became a sharpshooter uh, later in high school in the rifle club. But at that moment, I feared for my life. He chased me around the house. He shot at me. I hid under the bed. I thought that this was it, that at eight years old, I was going to uh, be murdered. Uh, the police were called. They took him away. He spent one night in jail and came back. And then we never talked about it again. So I developed my own uh, substance abuse issues, alcohol, uh, uh, committed many crimes, uh, was not a kind person, uh, and had serious mental health issues. I was uh, mental health arrested, uh, spent time in the psychiatric ward in five-point restraints. Now, um, they call it five-point restraints then. Um, and what that feeling of being locked up, of being in a room with uh, no clothes, no food, no other people, but I was never put into the criminal justice system. I was on welfare for five years into the state, and then I got put into a supported employment program. Uh, I was either going to go into this program or be put in the state psychiatric hospital long-term. And so I went into a psychiatric day treatment program for four months and then was placed in this work guide program where I had a counselor who came, would come with me to the job and support me as I tried to work. Well, folks got placed in different places. Uh, my friend, I wanted, got Meals on Wheels. Everyone wanted that gig because it was free lunch. Um, but I got placed at a legal aid organization being the receptionist, which I hated. I didn't think that uh, people like me, I'd never worked in an office. 
I didn't know what that was like. I didn't know how to fold a letter appropriately. I had to learn all of those basics. I didn't know the right language to use. I had always, I thought people like me, queer, poor, uh, recovering, uh, worked in kitchens or washed dishes or painted or did manual labor. I didn't know that uh, someone like me could actually work in an office. So someone had said, uh, what about law school? And I thought, eh, no. And I think the one of the turning points for me was I started I started having my consciousness raised a bit, and no one has ever asked me have I ever broken the law, whether I applied to law school for jobs for an apartment. They always ask if I have a criminal record, and I do not have a criminal record, even though I committed uh, several uh, felonies and probably hundreds of misdemeanors in my career. I also thought that. Um, because of my gender, because of the way I looked, that I could not be a professional person, that no one would hire me. And I had been kicked out of bathrooms my entire life, been asked to leave places, been asked, uh, what is it, uh, many times. And I talk about that because somehow I thought that going to law school, where I come from, having grown up poor, been a welfare recipient, been a legal aid client when I lost my benefits, that somehow I wasn't racist and I didn't understand uh, what it meant to have white privilege. And I had to go back and think about when I lived in that halfway house for a year that all of the women of color, almost all black women were, had a criminal record and none of the white women did or very few or just had a misdemeanor. And so I had to confront my own privilege, which was incredibly challenging, but I could see my father, he, had an attempted murder and he was not charged. He was not booked into jail. He did not get a criminal record and was able to go back to his work. So for me, that's, that's my journey. And I have to think about what privilege I have and what I do with that privilege and what that means for me because my belief in social justice, my poverty background, my queerness, will not keep me from having privilege because of the color of my skin. And I didn't really understand that until we had an epiphany in the work that I was doing that in a room full of people, when we were deciding about moving forward with legislation, with people who did have criminal records in this housing case, that we were discussing what level of oppression folks might be happy to accept. And I finally got what it meant to be community led and what it meant to really listen because I, I thought that I knew what was best for people. I thought I knew the law and I thought I could guide people to what was possible and what compromises they should accept. And me as an attorney was called out by community and saying the way that you're working in the world is racist. And I had to understand and really do a lot of work and soul searching about what that meant for me personally and what that meant for the organization that I worked at. And one more thing before I end is that it took me 10 years as an attorney feeling like an imposter before I even talked about my mental health issues or my substance abuse. And another um, 10 years before I talked about my gender openly and in public. And so, on this journey of race, I had to confront that shame and I had to learn to also listen to other people 
and their sense of feeling like an imposter. And also, even though I felt that way, and even though I felt like I didn't have any power, I had to step forward and own the tremendous power that I did have because of being born white in a white supremacist society. So I'm gonna stop sharing. Giving you guys a moment to let that sit in. All right, um, thank you, Murph, for being um, the brave soul that you are and for sharing your story with us to do. Very grateful and feel very honored and privileged to, to, to know you and to, to call you friends. All right, so you've heard our stories and now we want to sort of get a better idea of where um, you stand as an advocate, as well as the organization that you work in. And so we have a series of polls we wanna start this discussion with. And the first poll is, and it's a bit of myth busting too, I'll admit, but we're gonna go one by one and then be responsive. So Daniel is going to share the first poll. And the question is, you know, if I address, and, and you either agree or you disagree. So we wanna know whether you agree or disagree. If I address poverty, I will also address racism. So Daniel, whenever you're ready, if you could share the first poll. All right, Daniel, put them all in there together. Um, so, okay, let's do it. So the first question is, if I address poverty, I will also address racism. How do people select? People able to select the polls? Oh yeah, okay, here we go, there we go, yes. And then the second question is, my organization does race, race equity advocacy when we serve people of color. I've heard this one a lot. These are questions I get all the time, so I just wanted to pose them to you. The third one is race equity advocacy ignores the needs of poor white communities. Agree or disagree. And then finally, that my organization has a role to play in addressing systemic racism. We have lots of advocates here today. All right, let's take the polls. We're about halfway there. Give you guys a minute to answer since there are four questions. All right, looks like it's slowing down. We'll give a couple of you guys more time to answer. All right. So Danny, whenever you're ready to end the poll, I guess I could end it. All right, I see a couple more people coming in. I'm letting these stragglers jump on board. So I'm gonna end the poll now so that we can see the results. There we go, thank you, Daniel. Um, so the first one, it's almost half and half. If I address poverty, I will also address racism. And Murph and I will be talking today about this idea and this narrative around poverty and race and the intersection and this idea that if we just address the issue around poverty, it'll fix the issue around race because 53% um, agree with that statement, which is more than the 47% that disagree. The second question in our organization does race justice advocacy when we serve people of color is sort of similar to the first question, right? To some extent, 
And as you see, we have about 51% who agree with that and 49% who disagree. The third question, that race equity actually ignores the needs of poor white communities. Oh, 95% disagree, great. But there's still some here who have that belief. I get this question all the time and we'll address that. And then my organization has a role to play in addressing systemic racism. Um, and there are two people who, who disagreed with that, that their organization has a role to play in this as, as legal aid organizations. And we like that. And if you, agree or disagree, you're in the right space because that's the conversation we're gonna be having today. Um, thank you guys for participating in the polls. So I'm gonna start from the top. Um, if I address racism, I will also, if I address poverty, I will also address racism. Um, and we're gonna talk about this a little bit as we go through the presentation, but I wanna say the difference between race equity advocacy and anti-poverty advocacy is race equity advocacy is done with an acknowledgement and understanding that our nation was built on these racist ideas, racist premises. And as such, as Merv sort of discussed earlier, we all have sort of drank the Kool-Aid. So we hear these narratives. Um, we all believe these narratives to some extent, although we know some of them may be false and not completely true. Um, we see the disparities that exist although we may not examine why the disparities exist. So when you do race equity advocacy, my point is, it's different than just doing anti-poverty advocacy because race equity advocacy, first of all, acknowledges that racism exists. It also acknowledges that as such, because we live in America, that these disparities that we see, and we all see them when we practice, we know who's coming through our doors, who we're representing, and we know that a particular population is coming through. Otherwise, we can believe the narratives that we hear around why they're here, or we can examine the real root cause of why that exists. Race equity advocacy is done with, with developing strategies that attack the real reasons why these disparities exist. So when you decide I'm gonna file this litigation or we're gonna change this policy or we're gonna represent these people, you do it with the understanding of what the cause is and why it happens rather than just simply um, doing this sort of just representing this person as person. The difference is, you know, I know some organizations do a little bit of both. Some organizations do just direct services. Some organizations do systemic advocacy. Race equity advocacy is systemic advocacy. It's a way and approach to doing it, understanding these disparities exist and trying to change them on a systemic level. When people come through our doors, it's really important that they have um, folks on the ground who are helping them with their immediate needs. But it's also important that at some point we step back and we examine the why. Why is it that black mothers are the only ones that are coming through our doors on this issue? Why is it that black men are the only ones that are being, in, or why is there a disproportionate number of black men, you know, based on the population in Massachusetts? So you're in Massachusetts, you know what the population of, of a particular subset of people are, why are they disproportionately represented in this conundrum? So you, you determine why it exists. When you talk about the work, you acknowledge it exists and why it exists, and you do it strategically um, with solutions that attack that disparity. Um, and so the second question that, that says, my organization does race equity advocacy when we serve people of color, I'm gonna let Merv sort of talk about the work that COS does and, and, and how that's different from just anti-poverty work that we see. Yes, so 
I have a couple of examples. So I used to think that if we're representing people of color or we understand the disproportionate issues of people who are in prison or of farm workers or other populations, then we were um, not being racist and we were being anti-racist, but that was not true. And so a couple of examples. The first example is that we have represented farm workers. I know LSC and non-LSC funded programs both uh, have focused on this work over the years and we have done hundreds and hundreds of wage claim cases for the last 30 years uh, to support farm workers to make sure that people got paid that they were not laboring uh, without being compensated for their work. When we started doing the internal work on race equity, we also looked externally at how we could do race equity advocacy and we were, as an organization, confused about what that meant and what that looked like. And we went through the People's Institute for Undoing Racism. Uh, my colleague, Nick Allen, and I went through the Shriver Center, and we started to understand what this looked like. And one of the key principles is understanding the history of our laws. And so the folks working on wage claims went and looked at the history of the exclusion of agricultural workers from the statute. Instead of, as we had always done, accepting that the law is the law, I'm sorry, you're not, you don't get overtime. Move on three decades, 30 years of uh, agricultural, agricultural workers on our watch, not getting overtime. That's millions and millions of dollars that are not going into uh, families who are, at least in Washington state, 99% Latinx. That is a systemic race issue. And so in doing the history, we understood that uh, the Southern Democrats in the 1930s, as many of you know, only agreed to parts of the New Deal if uh, workers who were majority Black were left out of that deal, that they would not get overtime, that they would not get this privilege or this protection. And so in understanding that racist history, we brought a state constitutional claim saying that this was a violation of equal protection. And we talked about race throughout the case, that this was a racist law, that this was a racist practice. And this, we brought a class action lawsuit, we brought all of the usual wage claims, and we brought this constitutional issue and framed it in terms of race. And that case has taken four and a half years. It went all the way up to our state Supreme Court. We won in a 5-4 opinion to include farm workers in that. And there was huge pushback. Washington state is an agricultural state. That's a powerful industry in our state. And there continues to be huge amounts of pushback, how this will harm workers, what this looks like. But that's an example of using a race equity lens when looking at a case, whether it's an individual wage claim case or it's a class action case or it's a policy and understanding how race plays out. Thank you. And if you guys have questions um, as we go through this, please feel free to put them in the chat pot. Towards the end, we will be answering some questions so you can start filling those out. Um, so that's a great example of why when you, by simply serving people of color, you're not doing race equity. She could have filed the same litigation without calling a thing a thing, without, you know, speaking truth to power, without, without mentioning the fact of the history around this, why it was created and why it has created such a huge disparity amongst these farm workers versus other folks who get overtime. Um, and so that's a really powerful litigation and what Murph has done 
in Seattle is now trying to be replicated in other areas where people also have a similar story and similar history around why that exists, why are particular people excluded from these overtime benefits? So um, bravo to you, Murph. The third question was that the race equity advocacy, people ask me this all the time, what about the poor white people that exist in our communities? I want to say this once and for all, race equity advocacy does not ignore the needs of poor white communities. Race equity advocacy actually is done, when it's done correctly, it's done in a way where you're examining why particular populations are impacted a particular way. One great example is if you look at student achievement, you're in a school, they're white kids, they're black kids, they're Latinx kids, and there's an issue around student achievement. Race equity advocacy explores why each of these various groups have are having maybe a disproportionate or maybe even just any issue around um, why they're not achieving. So for instance, the reason the, the, the Black kids are not achieving may be different from the Latinx kids. There may be an ELS issue. Um, the reason why the Latinx kids are not achieving that the rate that the white kids are, there may be a different reason. So the, the, the difference between race equity advocacy and just regular poverty advocacy is we examine the needs of each individual group separately. And so we fashion solutions that address the actual root cause rather than simply having this neutral, um, across the board, this idea of equal that, that can satisfy all. We give them all tutors um, and they'll be fine. Um, and depending on what the issue is, tutor may not be the solution. So it, it really does examine the, the true cost and fashion solutions that address that. All right, so now I'm going to share my screen again to move on to the next part of this discussion. I wanna start by sort of setting some context. We know this has been like the craziest last two years, year and a half that we've seen. Um, you know, COVID hits and then on top of that, George Floyd is killed. And as a consequence, we see people taking to the streets in a way they have never taken to the streets before. You know, we've had the death of unarmed black men before and we've had protests and we've sort of gone through this, but something was different about George Floyd and people are now questioning and wondering whether this is um, the movement we've been looking for or whether George Floyd will be another moment. Um, but the interesting thing about it is people got involved in this discussion that had never got involved before. We're getting uh, Starbucks and you know, corporations putting out statements and, uh, and people supporting Black Lives Matter. Um, change is being made that we've never seen before. The indigenous population and the Washington football team have been going back and forth about this for years. And finally, um, they have acknowledged the hurt of appropriating the culture and have decided to change that mascot. And even in the state that I live in, in the top right-hand corner in Mississippi, we had this Confederate emblem in our flag for years. It had been on our ballot. We had voted on it over and over again um, and lost every time. And it took something like this to finally make a change. And it happened so swiftly and immediately. Um, so it, you, we could all sort of feel something happening different this time, both on a national level, a regional level, but also on a local level. Um, so we can all probably can, can articulate some sort of change that's happened as a consequence of that. Anytime there is momentous change or movement, we as advocates have to be prepared for the resistance and the pushback. Murph was saying she's going against the agricultural community was very powerful. These folks make lots of money and they have lots of friends both in the legislature um, and, 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 and throughout the community. 
And so we saw different levels of sort of resistance and pushback as a consequence. Um, there is a movement afoot to sort of share this 1%, this power that has been um, ever present for so long. And as such, people feel like they're losing something. So as a consequence, we just see sort of this pushback groups that have been in the dark before now coming to light. Folks felt very comfortable um, inundating the Capitol in January. And now we see a slew of voter suppression laws coming across the nation. Um, when you bring it back to the context of the work that we do, um, we see the similar thing. These are impacts that we've seen for years. So whether you do criminal justice work, whether you do health, whether you're in the education field, whether we talk about life expectancy and wealth or housing, in every aspect we've seen sort of these racial disparities in these communities that are, are the poorest that we represent. And I want to invite you guys now at this point in the chat pod to share with me maybe some examples that you've seen in the people that you've represented over the years. So I just wanna see, get some feel for what you've seen. Is there some form of disparity that you've seen across race in the communities that you serve? So for those of you who, um, who wanna help engage in this discussion, please uh, type it into the chat pod. Thank you, Todd, for kicking us off. Um, Todd said, targeting people of color for predatory home loans, yes. Criminal justice outcomes, and Todd, we see that in the economic field across the, the board. When you're going to purchase a car, or if you need any type of loan, um, there's this predatory sort of idea around lending, um, we, we, we've seen in a number of ways. Affordable health care, right? Who gets health care versus who doesn't? Thank you, uh, Betsy, I appreciate that. Home ownership, Victoria, right? Who's renting versus who owns homes and, and the reasons why? You know, why does that disparity exist? The criminal justice outcome, Jan, yes, very prevalent, very, um, we, we see a lot of that and there's a lot of discussion around that now. Trauma from removing kids, yes, the child welfare system, for removing kids from their homes through the family regulations, the surveillance system. Um, I was working with some social workers once doing some, um, some anti-bias training, honestly, just really basic implicit bias training. And one of the social workers was talking about how she went into a home and, and she just recognizes in this training that this, the child did not have a headboard and where she grew up, you know, you had a headboard on your bed. I mean, it sounds stupid and really basic, right? But because her norm was to have a headboard, a child without a headboard, I mean, she used that as an excuse to say that this child was in some way being neglected. Um, so, you know, those things that are really interesting. School to prison pipeline, uh, yes, lots of work around it. Access to education and special education services. Who are getting special education services? I did a lot of this work. And if I had one more SPED director tell me, well, we don't have to give them the Cadillac. And I would say, well, we also don't want the Pinto, right? Um, so see a lot of disparity around special education services. All of the above down in my home state of Louisiana. Yes, veterans, legal services. We have veterans of color are more likely to have a harder time accessing benefits and services they have earned through their military services. Amen, Anna, thank you. 
disparate impact of climate change, and man, is that not coming to the forefront now. I mean, people tried to act like it was a ghost that never existed, lots of uh, validity around the, this idea of climate change. So the, I don't know, they, they probably still claim it doesn't exist. You, they could, you could wash away a whole city and they were like, what climate change? Uh, equitable healthcare, making sure that BIPOC women are being listened to by their doctors. Yes, just being ignored. My mom said she'd gone to the doctor and, and he never touched her. And it really bothered her, right? And I finally said, mama, get a new doctor. <laughs> you don't have to give this man your money. Um, so yes, double standards between white parents and parents of color and family court. We see this, right? We see this play out in the courts. We see this play out in the clients that come through our doors. We see this play out in our own lives, language access in the courts. How can you possibly navigate a court system that you don't even understand the language? Racial profiling by police and traffic stops, border patrol. So thank you guys. All of these are, are great and, and examples of what we've seen in the work that we do. Um, so somebody mentioned this, but the, the, the wealth gap that has existed for years that came as a consequence of people being able to build wealth in a time where Black people weren't even allowed to accumulate any form of wealth, now has created a gap that continues to, to become larger and larger and extend over the years. I, one economist told me that it is so huge that even if they try to get families up to par by filling that gap with money, it will be, it's impossible to catch up at this point. Um, housing, somebody mentioned this, even in terms of the role that redlining played in segregating communities and in that segregation, how they then use that to, to use something like property taxes to create disparities around resources that communities get. So property taxes then, of course, determine where your kids, uh, where you live, determine where your kids go to school. Property taxes determine the quality of school that your kids get. And all of this is still very much relevant. Something that started in the 1930s still very much prevalent today. Where you live, who you live around dictates the value of your property even today. Um, education, someone mentioned that 23 billion more funding goes to districts that serve predominantly white students compared to districts of color. There's a litigation happening in my community right now. Same school district, two high schools, one is predominantly white, one is predominantly black. It's like night and day. It cannot be ignored. Um, and so those types of litigation is still happening in communities. And then COVID. COVID was interesting because um, especially those who work in the healthcare field, we know that these underlying disparities existed right around who gets healthcare, who doesn't, who has insurance, who doesn't. So COVID just sort of exposed something that already happened. So those that were surprised, I was like, you clearly don't do advocacy work. Anyone who's been advocating for healthcare knew about these disparities and COVID just simply exposed what was already there. But at the end of the day, the work that we all do is really about having access to opportunity. Um, and that's why we sort of represent these clients. We wanna increase their ability to access a quality education, to have the necessary income they need to have well-being. In order to do that, we have to have access to transportation to even get to the good jobs. Are there food deserts in particular communities versus people being able to eat healthy foods that impact their health? Um, having affordable and safe housing, somewhere where I can afford to live. And now you hear housing advocates talking about housing as a right. You know, it's not about you, how much money you make and your ability to get. It's really about everyone needs to have 
a home that is safe and affordable. Having access to the justice system um, is, is, is tremendous in, in a lot of people's future. If you get charged with a crime, can you afford an attorney? Can you afford a, a good attorney? And as such, um, what does that mean for your outcome? And COVID also exposed this disparity around communication, students who didn't have laptops. And even when you gave all the kids laptops in my community, some just didn't even have access to the internet. And then when you gave them all hotspots, they learned that even with the hotspot, if you don't have the necessary, and I'm not a technology expert, but if, if, the, if you don't have broadband in that area or access in that area, even a hotspot can't give it to you. Those children had to then be bused to libraries or spaces where the, the, um, they could actually use their hotspots. So a lot of um, glaring gaps in communications happened as a consequence of COVID. All right, so with that, I'm gonna turn to Murph. And I just wanna ask Murph, um, how does your organization determine what matters it wants to address? Um, and why have you chosen to practice with a race equity lens? And in terms of the approach of the work that you guys do? We, like many other organizations, have case acceptance. And in using a race equity lens, what we figured out was that we had to start internally and look at how our how our organization reflects the institutions that we are trying to change. So what is the hierarchy? What is the racism that exists in our own institution that is similar to say Department of Social Services or the Department of Labor or uh, like a predatory lender? Where are we similar? Where are we complicit? What does that look like? And we looked at our intake system and who gets services and who doesn't. And on a very basic level, we decided as an organization to give up certain kinds of funding and to think about where is the racism inherent in legal aid? Who is left out based on the LSC and some state uh, laws and regulations? Who can't actually access legal services and decided to focus on those populations. So who is uh, disproportionately incarcerated? People of color, particularly black men, who are left out, who are undocumented, majority people of color. Who needs welfare reform? Again, majority people of color. All of this uh, racism informs what we do. So we looked at and realized that uh, having people show up, call online, whatever kind of intake that we really needed to be community led and what did that look like? And we had huge discussions about what is community? Who is community? What does that really mean? It took probably a year and we have folks now who are community workers who are building relationships with community on a different basis. So it used to be really transactional do you qualify? Do you meet the income guidelines? Does your case fit into the case priority? Does it meet uh, this criteria? Here's the retainer agreement check. And instead now we are moved from a transactional basis to a relational basis. So we're building long-term relationships with communities, with community groups, with communities who are being uh, activists. And we try through our case acceptance criteria to say, one, where did this case come from? Are there other people working on this case? Is it part of a broader movement? What's the bigger issue? What's the history? And then is there an anti-racist element to this case? Is there a race-based 
claim and what are the intersectional oppressions that are happening around this particular issue. And then we try to look individually, if I'm a white advocate, how will my race play out in this case? How will it on an institutional, personal, interpersonal and systemic level? And if I'm a person of color, how will my race play out? What are the power dynamics inherent in these relationships with community? And we definitely don't always do it perfectly, but it really has shifted how we do our work. And it's been an institutional shift. It's been a painful shift. Uh, we have had advocates leave when we were doing this shift and questions come up about who are you serving? Do you need to be a person of color to get access to services at our organization? And so we've had to really talk about what it looks like to be an anti-racist organization and where we are headed and what that really means and what how are our folks willing to give up? And how do we really listen to what folks want us to do? For example, we had this mass email went out to legal aid from a group, Epic, ending the prison, prison industrial complex looking for land use attorney to challenge the building of a new youth jail. Currently, there were only 30 kids, mostly kids of color, mostly black boys in that facility. And they wanted to build a brand new shiny 150 bed uh, youth jail. And so we at first thought, and almost I almost pressed it, I'm like, we don't need to do land use. But then we took it through our case acceptance, through our race equity tool and realized that this was systemic racism. And so we took that on. We uh, pro, we partnered with a pro bono attorney who had more experience in land use. We had never really done a land use case and uh, it changed whether or not we would, we would take a case and how we, viewed, how we viewed that case. And we were able to build and restore some trust in communities and be community led and build these long-term relationships. And we saw this, we lost in the court of appeals on this case, and yet the community saw it as a win and they weren't looking at it in terms of win and loss. They were looking at the long-term movement and that having counsel and having this type of power was a success. And yes, the jail got built, but now they're talking about closing the jail and repurposing the jail. And that for me as an attorney, I think it's we win in court or we don't win in court, we pass the law, we don't pass the law. But when we're part of a bigger movement, there's a different way of thinking about what success and failure looks like. And so what does it mean for a legal aid attorney that success is actually building the relationship and building that trust and, and coming together to fight another day? Yeah, and so Marv, you said a couple of things that sort of resonated with some conversation we had earlier. That I just, first of all, I want to just ask a basic question. Does your organization do direct services at all? We do some direct services, but we mainly focus on impact work. And so we made the really difficult decision uh, in, I think it, in starting in 2011, but really in uh, 2017 to not do individual cases anymore. We do have the intake line for the state's prison. So we do advice and counsel for people in prison. Uh, we do collect calls and letters and we talk to folks because there really isn't anyone else to do that work. And we feel like it's really important. And most legal aid organizations won't do that, even though it's possible under the LSC regulations to give counsel and advice, as long as you're not representing someone who's in prison. 
So we do do that, but basically we have made the difficult decision to no longer do any individual cases. Well, as the executive director of CLS, how do you respond to, you had mentioned earlier, advocates or anyone who says that white clans can't get representation from CLS? What is your response to that when you hear it? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, sometimes nuanced, sometimes not, depending on the audience. What I say is that the basis of our laws, of our justice system is based on white supremacy. And I believe that. And in that belief and looking at the constitution that people were property and that white people were not treated as property. And our justice system is based up on upholding that, and I can go through the cases depending on whether or not someone is interested in that. When we dismantle racism, that is what John Powell calls targeted universalism, that there are some folks who have structurally and intentionally been left out. Until we undo that, even if we eliminate poverty completely, racism will still exist that we have to eliminate and work to be anti-racist. Otherwise we are complicit in the system. Every time we have brought a case and have not looked at race, we, have uphold, we are upholding that system of racism. When we represent white clients, we have to still think what are the racial issues at play? And so it's not whether the client is a client of color, or whether the client is white, it's whether is there a racist action happening? And for 200 and some years, we have not thought about, at least our organization as lawyers, what is the racism inherent in this case? Why is this situation the way it is? And how have I played a role in upholding that? So if we're not talking about race, then we're accepting the current system to me as good and fair. Thank you, Mark. That's a great segue into the next sort of part of this um, presentation. So I want to just start with this really basic concept around the fact that race is a social construct. And outside of what we say it is, it really doesn't exist. And the first time someone said that to me, I really had to sit in that. Like, what does that mean that it doesn't exist other than, the, uh, other than what we say it is? Another interesting thing about race is that it evolves and it changes. So some are able to come to this country and may initially um, encounter resistance or pushback, but at some point they were able to sort of assimilate into society in a way that others will never be able to and have never been able to assimilate. Um, and so I just wanna say it evolves and it transitions. Race is a construct and doesn't exist other than how we say it exists, but it is so powerful. So powerful that it is the difference between life and death in a space like the United States of America. So we have to understand and acknowledge that. And that's why when people have this idea around colorblindness versus this idea of color consciousness, it's important to know that I live in the South and I work with and am friends with and associate with lots of people of different races. But my white friends are always saying, you know, when I grew up, my parents always tell us we don't see race, you know, we're colorblind and always having to explain the troublesomeness with that. Like that is an issue. 
if you don't see race, then you're not acknowledging, kind of like Merce said, you're not acknowledging the reality of where we live. You're not acknowledging my experience as a Black woman in America. Um, and then, you know, on top of all that, race does exist. I mean, it it's alive and well in the U.S. We are different colors and hues. And we really have to get to a space where you don't have to be colorblind, but you appreciate, you love someone based on their color and you understand that they are different and we love and appreciate those differences. We want to get to a space where you cannot determine someone's advantage or disadvantage simply based on their race. That is the overall sort of umbrella pie in the sky idea that we're chasing. Um, and so all of these terms are now being thrown around. The conversation around race has really shifted. So in addition to this idea of colorblind, it's this idea of, of race in general, we're hearing DEI, everyone has a DEI community, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, we're transitioning from this, this, this idea of equality and we're understanding the need for this idea of equity. Um, diversity is easy because um, diversity, you can count the number of people in an organization and say, yes, check the box, we've got diversity. Um, but inclusion is a little more elusive. What does it mean to be inclusive in an organization? What does it mean to work in a space where you can be your authentic self, where you feel valued, where, um, where you are valued, um, where you feel like what you're being heard, your voice is being heard, and again, that it is in fact valued. So we, we have the EI committees, a lot of organizations, I'm sure some, some of you have them. And, and we are all working in our own way to sort of achieve that. But I would ask folks to really think about what does inclusion mean in the organization that you work in? What does inclusion mean to you? And what does it look like? Um, because it's not as easy to measure as the concept such as diversity. And for the first time, you know, since the George Floyd killing, um, folks are talking about this idea of anti-racism. I mean, you couldn't even say racist or racism. <laughs> without ruffling feathers, without people. Uh, I've had people, when I had this discussion, say that um, you're stirring the pot or you're racist because you're talking about race. To be called racist <laughs> simply by talking about race is really interesting. But um, now the term of anti-racism exists. Dr. Kendi in his book has really tried to lay out in a simplistic way this idea around, given where we are right now, we're in a struggle really around this idea of race. You're either sort of with us or against us. So you're either uh, anti-racist, meaning you both acknowledge that it exists and you are actively working towards eradicating racism in America, or you are racist in the sense that if you're silent and complicit, you may not talk about it at all. And as such, you may feel like, you know, I'm not racist, but I'm not getting involved in this. The fact that you refuse to get involved, the fact that you are being silent, is complicity and so you're really perpetuating the idea around that's the safe space and this safe space is where this uh, racism has been able to breathe and live and continue um so that according to dr kendi is sort of this idea of anti-racism so when organizations say that they're anti-racist that means that they have taken a proactive measure to both acknowledge that racism exists but to also take measures to eradicate it Race, is, race, this idea of race is so much more complex than just this general idea around this malicious bad actor. Racism is hate is, is, you know, sort of the foundation of what we've heard and learned over the years that there's this malicious bad actor who doesn't like a particular group just simply based on their, their color or their race. 
Um, we know now that racism is a lot more complex than that. There's this idea of what we call strategic racism. And we hear it in dialogue with the politics, what people say, how they say it, the terms they use. It really signals something without having to say it explicitly, although people feel pretty comfortable <laughs> saying explicitly now as well. And then there's this component of structural racism. And structural racism is really that spot where as legal advocates, we can play a role in making a change because um, structural racism doesn't necessarily require an intent. So we can have disparities and disproportionalities around particular races without any actual intent. No school district is gonna say, we want our students of color to fail. But when you unpack the actual structure and you understand what lies underneath and all of the components that make it up, we have to acknowledge that these barriers exist that make it more difficult for particular groups to advance. And as such, we have to really work on deconstructing and, and um, dismantling those components so that maybe we could get to a space where there is in fact, um, people's race doesn't really dictate their advantage or disadvantage in this, in this area or space. And with that, I want to sort of introduce you to, um, well, I wanna go back to Murph really quickly. So Murph, I just wanna ask you, how has your organization taken, or have they, have you taken any new or additional steps in your approach to advocacy in the wake of this shift in conversation? Like some people are saying, we need to take advantage of it now that people are talking about it. But I also have heard other advocates say, you know, this new shift in the conversation has created new challenges for us. So organizations have had to shift, even organizations who've been doing anti-racism work. Have there been challenges for you as a consequence in the shift in the conversation? And have there been advantages? Have you guys changed anything as a consequence of where we are now as a nation? Yeah, I think, I think for us, we started really, really doing this work um, about five years ago. And so it's been fantastic to see this shift in this conversation. And I think the real challenge for us is working with and supporting people to go deeper, to really, really get under the surface and to, to say that this is just not a check the box, that just because you have a race equity statement or a race equity, we learned over for the whole life of our organization, we had an inclusion, diversity, and multicultural committee, and yet we had practices in our organization that negatively impacted people of color for decades. And so we had to really go deep and look at those issues and really listen to people of color. So it, it's, I think it's nice to have a statement. It's great to have a committee. And we had to really look at our culture, what was unsaid, what made a good employee. And for a long time, I think it was unwritten that a good employee was someone who acted in a way that was embodying white culture. Someone who worked hard, worked more, was on time, perfectionism, the way they wrote, the way they talked, all of those kinds of things. So I think really thinking about that and going deeper. And I just wanna say one more thing about individual cases. We do represent individuals. We may have one individual client, but what we don't do is what I think about as individual legal services. So we don't do case after case that's about that one person. We look to see if there's a systemic impact issue around that individual, that group of individuals or that or that organization. And I'll say one other thing about that. A few years ago when we were doing the Know You New Jail, I gave a little speech. It was less than two minutes uh, at the jail. Uh, there was a protest as they were building it. 
some people had lined the streets and were locking arms and we don't do direct action. Uh, but I was giving this speech and I talked about that the roots of that youth jail were based in slavery. And of course, that was the quote that made the paper. And I got a call from a funder saying, you maybe want to get some public relations training. Talking about slavery in terms of legal aid is not really useful. And we got tons of calls and pushback on that. And that was probably four years ago. And now, all the time, people are linking slavery to mass incarceration. And so I do think that there has been this cultural shift and as legal aid organizations, as legal aid attorneys, we have to say these things, even though we might get pushback because it starts the conversation and it allows people an opportunity to take a step back and learn and to think about things uh, in a different way. Even though it's scary, which it was totally scary for me um, to think about losing funding and those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. So those are some great examples. And I just want to say, when I was working at the Center for Justice, um, you know, I um, we did direct services. I felt like there had to be a mix between them both um, for a number of reasons. Direct services was really important because it gave us, it allowed us to have our pulse of what was happening on the ground. Like I always knew what was going on in the schools, that there had been a shift. And what was really interesting to me doing a statewide program was that what's happening up, up North Mississippi and the Delta was also happening on the coast of half a century. So we could find these trends and patterns that were happening across the state as a consequence of, of doing direct services. So our direct services work directly fed into the systemic advocacy we did. So sort of similar to what you were saying, Mark, is we would find an issue um, and then that sort of said, do we need a policy change as a consequence of that? Is litigation going to, to change this conundrum? How do we stop all of these kids or parents coming to us on this same issue? So it required and it allowed us to then examine that issue on a systemic level. So we did a little bit of both. We did the direct services, but we also understood the importance of doing the systemic work as well. Another thing you were talking about, the internal changes and the shift in the conversation, which like you said, four years ago, I made this statement and I got a call from a funder and now you make that statement and no one blinks and it just really shows how the shift in conversation has really happened. And even internally, I mean, all of our organizations need to be having these discussions. We're talking now about how to, uh, you know, in the midst of COVID, this, we really start this discussion around this perfectionism idea and the root and the cause of where that came from. And even this idea around um, this working nine to five, all these constructs that exist that are now, it's almost like being in the matrix, like who says you have to work from nine to five? And that's what it takes to be productive. Um, can people, some people work better at night. Some people work better early in the morning. So even creating sort of this flexibility in our organizations in a way we never did before. Everybody don't have to be in an office. And I think COVID sort of showed, you know, showed that as well. And as a consequence, we're going to a hybrid model. So you can come to the office some days, you can work from home, as long as you're getting your job done, you do and work in a space that's conducive to you. So I think both what's happened over this last year and a half has really got people talking and thinking and even rethinking how we all are like stuck in this construct and this idea around what work looks like. How do you know somebody's being productive? Because you have to see them in their office all day. And if they're not in their office, then there's this idea that there's some way or not being productive. So. I just want to ask each of you to sort of challenge some of the constructs that exist in, in your work environment, in your life, and even think like, who says 
that that's like the right way. And maybe it's not, maybe there are better ways. And you start, once you start down that sort of road of questioning, it's amazing sort of what comes out. And that's how you then reimagine, you become more innovative and you put, and you create better solutions as a consequence of that. I'm always telling people to jump out of the box because the box has us very much stuck. Um, all right, so four levels of racialization. Um, and Murph mentioned this earlier. This is a concept that we teach in the Institute. And we do this because um, we acknowledge again that race is very complex, that it's not just this original bad actor or malicious actor against a particular person. It starts on the internalized level. Murph really shared a lot in terms of her story, things that were internalized um, as a consequence of, of, of their journey things for me that were internalized as a consequence of my journey. And so we all carry around our individual experiences and selves based on what we learn from our parents, what we learn from our peers. Um, and as such, we come to every space with that sort of backpack of experiences in terms of who we are. But it really does, as we get into the interpersonal component of this, play a role in how we interact with people. Have I had positive experiences interacting with white men? because that then dictates how I encounter white men in society. When I walk into a space as an attorney, even as a woman, and I'm the only woman in the space, and I'm the only black person in the space, do I feel that I fit in? Do I feel that I measure up? Do I have some sort of internal inferiority as a consequence of, of my experience? Do they have some sort of internal superiority based on their own experiences? So both the internalized really plays a way in how we in work with each other in terms of interpersonal. And then we all make up and are all parts of various institutions. Each of our organizations we work in is an institution. Our kids go to an institution when they go to school. The police department is an institution. So there are various institutions. And those institutions all have policies and rules. But every rule and policy that there is is being implemented and pushed by an individual. And so institutions are created as a consequence of each individual that we are when we come to a space in the interpersonal interaction that we have. If my boss tells me to go over there and give that guy a felony, do I cave and go and give him a felony? Because now I'm a part of this institution that has, is creating this system. Or do I push against sort of this idea and do something different? So what an institution looks like is based on the people that, that it encompasses. And then those institutions work with other institutions to create structures. So when people say the prison to school pipeline what they mean is the structure of kids being in this institution in school and how that then interacts with the criminal justice institution or system and and then how that interacts with the youth court institution or system or even their home institution or system and how they all work together to create sort of this structure i, I at the center for justice i did a project called the systems change project and the idea was what i learned in my investigation and, and, and doing for your request is that 93% of the youth court cases in that county that I worked in came from the school system. They were single-handedly funneling all of these black boys into the youth court system. And when you go to the school and say, do you realize that 93% of, no, like they did not own it. They could not believe it. You have to show them the raw data. Um, but they had no idea how their system was playing a role in creating the larger criminal justice system of funneling these young boys through this system. So just as an example of that. And this is another sort of way of looking at it because the, the personal is right there in the center. It expands to the interpersonal, the institutional, and then the structural and undergirding it all 
is this idea of bias. So we already have the intentional racist or racism that exists, but in addition to that is these biases and we all display them. And what I wanna say is like when I was doing my work, um, most of these people that I was dealing with were black people, the principal, the superintendent, the teachers, um, and they drink the Kool-Aid too. If what you see and what you learn and hear um, on the media, on TV, and everything is that black boys don't value education, that they're disruptive, that they're violent, um, that we should fear them, then black female teachers come to spaces and feel the same way. And as such, they treat them in a particular way based on what they believe and understand. That's unconscious bias working. It can work on a level we just can't always think about as black and white because it's how white people treat white people sometimes, how black people treat black people and think about black people, how black people think about black men, um, you know, and how we, how we fear a hoodie now, right? After Trayvon Martin, the, a piece of clothing that we have been wearing forever has now been, I went to a school and they had like a hoodie and they had an X through it. You can't even wear a hoodie to school anymore. I was like, when did clothing become the problem? Um, so it's just amazing how all of these different levels actually work and how we all sort of drink the Kool-Aid and we all have bias as a consequence of living in this space. And to make it even a little more complex, I just want to under, help you understand sort of the intersection of power and economics that plays a role in that. When we talk about internal, we talked about bias a little bit about privilege, as well as the internalized component. And we think about the interpersonal, the institutional structural, we have to think about history like Merck talked repeatedly about how when we looked at the history, how do we get to this point? We have to understand where we came from to understand how we got here, to understand how we dismantle it. You know, the importance of culture and identity, how we all identify differently, um, how, I, how we identify is based on our own individual internalized experiences. You can have six people from the same area, one will identify as Mexican, one Chicana, you know, one Latinx, Hispanic, I mean, they're different and it just depends on their own experiences. So identity can be very complex and identity definitely correlates a lot with culture and history. So the last thing I just wanna share with you guys and Merv talked about this a little bit is in order to be successful in your external race equity advocacy, you have to also look internally. Lots of organizations put out statements, um, but are, are struggling internally. I hear organization after organizations I work with say, you know, we can, we can get people of color to the table. We can hire more black women or black men, but they don't stay longer than a year. And what I tell them is, although you are increasing your numbers, you haven't changed the culture. So you have to really examine internally a couple of things. And the way we sort of talk about this in the Institute is, first of all, diversity is important, but diversity is simply a tool. Diversity means nothing is not inclusion. Um, how do you come to the space and feel valued? That's really important to people. Feeling valued, feel like your voice counts, that you have a say in what happens within that organization. Does your organization have the capacity to do race equity advocacy. Don't assume that um, just because we've been practicing law for umpteen years that we understand what it takes to do this with the race equity lens. So people need to have the capacity and understand sort of the tools and the methodology that goes along with doing this work. Um, and then the structure. And so I can't go to the courtroom or stand in a podium and talk about these issues around race equity advocacy or, or racism and my organization doesn't even say that. You know, Shriver made a huge shift. You'll see our byline for economic and racial justice. That just happened in the last five years. Um, before that, Shriver was like the epitome of anti-poverty advocacy, but now they've even acknowledged the importance of understanding race 
and poverty and doing this work and has changed as a consequence of that. So I have the, my communication says so, the work that we do say so, and the advocates that exist within the organization believe that this commitment is necessary in order to do that. And then most importantly is culturally. Are you walking your talk? You can do all this great talk about anti-racism and do all the external advocacy you want, but then internally you're struggling because people of color or, or particular groups are not feeling like they fit in, that this is a space for them, that they can be their honest, authentic, and true selves. So I just want to acknowledge that this requires both an internal and an external approach to um, be successful. I want to finally sort of turn to Murph because I know um, there was a difference between what it looked like as a staff attorney and then becoming the ED and sort of, you know, all the transition that happened there. And I know that their organization did a lot of work around making that shift. So Mark, you know, give us just a few key internal changes that have been made under your leadership to sort of align your organization with race equity. Yeah, so what we did is we created the first thing we talked about was what what are our values and what is our culture and we tried to make the unspoken spoken so we went through a process and we created our values and commitment so when people start they get a little card and uh, we have a picture. Um, uh, I had uh, that I can show folks if they want to want to see it, so what do we value at CLS. Uh, what are we committed to? How will we behave? How will we interact with each other? What are the expectations around that? And being very clear without being draconian. And so we had to have these kind of conversations. And the other really important piece was we finally caucused by race. So white people caucused to talk about internal racialized superiority and what that looked like and how that played out and how we were complicit. And then people of color formed the collective. And they talked about internal racial oppression and also uh, what were the issues at CLS and what did they wanna see? But nobody was specific, none of the groups were specifically tasked. They were just given the space. And the collective wrote a letter to all of CLS pointing out all of the issues. And we came together as an organization to work through them. And we had to balance how do we be led by the people most impacted, same as with our advocacy without putting the burden on people of color to lead. And so we try to do things in mixed race streams. We instituted, we have a union and so we had a grievance procedure and we had this complaint process and nobody ever really used it and there was lots of harm and people needed to be held accountable and people needed to heal. And so we started talking about restorative justice and transformative justice and what that would look like internally. If we wanted the institutions, we fought to uh, be more transformative and less punishing, then how could we do that at CLS? How can we preserve relationships when there is harm done? How can we bring people together? And it's it's still a struggle. People are still feel trauma from the ways that they may have been harmed at work. And it's tricky sometimes to, as an institution, hold ourselves accountable. As a staff attorney, I could rail against the man and against management. And then now becoming on the other side of the union and doing that and thinking about the organization and how I uphold the nonprofit comp industrial complex and the whole history of nonprofits and the history of legal aid. and trying to uh, walk that line of all being one, but still recognizing positional authority and still recognizing what my race gives me. So that's, it's complex, but that's kind of some of the things we've done. 
Yeah, it's not easy work and it is long-term and ongoing is sort of how we describe it at the Travis Center. Like you, it, it's a long-term practice. Um, so we're getting close to time. So I'm going to just wrap up by saying that, you know, in doing race equity advocacy, we really have to expand our approach to what I call equity. And that means understanding these concepts around social cognition and implicit bias understanding the complexities of systems and how to sort of dismantle those systems, unpack them so that we can reimagine how to, to, to sort of hit the restart button. If, if we could change the system, what would it look like? What do we need to do to make that change? Understanding the importance of working with communities and those that are directly impacted. That's a critical component of doing this work. Um, getting away from the, the lawyerly idea that we have all the ideas and solutions, um, understanding that those that are most impacted really have the, um, the, the solutions that they need. We feel like we're helping communities, but, and they'll tell me all the time, we appreciate you doing this, but this is what we really need right now. So being sure that we do have our pulse on the community and what they actually need. It requires the understanding the, 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 you know, having the competency to do this work, understanding the tools and schools skills that exist to do it, having the capacity to do it, the resources and that your organization is behind you in doing that, and ultimately <clears throat> having the commitment to do this work. So I always say the three C's are necessary. I want to leave you with this quote by Marion Kaba, who is an abolitionist. And a lot of people think about abolition, they was like, oh, no police. No, abolition is really about reimagining and rebuilding. So when something can't be fixed, then the question is, what can we build instead? And sometimes we have to become innovative and think about what do we build instead when we know a system can't work and we continue to try to reform, 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 and that does not work. So in summary, race equity advocacy requires a new way of thinking about the work, a new way of talking, you know, being really explicit and, and clear about why these things exist in terms of the way we frame it and, and the narratives that we speak, not reiterating bad narratives, but creating new narratives um, the way we engage with both the communities that we serve, the clients that we serve, our each other as advocates, um, new advocacy tools, and a new form of militancy, which just really means with a lot with direct imperative and understanding the need and the um, and that we're at a critical phase right now in terms of doing that. And so I want to stop sharing so that I can see those who have. Um, the cameras, I wanna thank you guys for joining us. I want to invite you to continue this discussion at lunch at um, 12 noon. Murph and I will be there to sort of lead a discussion or continue the discussion and answer any questions that you may have. Um, but other than that, I just wanna thank you guys for joining us and for being such great lessons and for engaging in the discussion as well. Danielle. Sorry. <laughs> trying to remember to turn my my volume back on okay so we're just going to wrap up here and then we will there's a lot there's a lot of thank yous in the chat box as you all can see um we're just going to wrap up here and then we'll resume this conversation in the networking session at 12 o'clock so feel free to bring your lunch and um be ready to um get engaged in conversation okay thank you Bye, guys. See you soon.